Formula One returns to the land of the rising sun. Like a sushi chef with a chainsaw, we're going to blast through the history of the Japanese Grand Prix. And hot on the heels of our discussion last week about the evolution of the crash helmet, we'll be talking about fire suits in our tech corner. And we'll talk about the news and reactions to the racing from Suzuka. So grab some wasabi and chopsticks and get ready for another thrilling episode of F1 Break Check. Welcome. You are listening to F1 Break Check. The epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective. With your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. All right, so we're back with F1 Break Check. I'm Scott Vick, and with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Corey Broom. Corey, how you doing, sir? Uh, good. We're, we're talking right before the podcast that uh, our day jobs have been killing us slowly. Yes. It, we're, we're both in IT, and it's been one of those weeks. Actually, the last couple of weeks has been one of those weeks. Yeah, it has. It's been one of those months. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Absolutely. It, it's it's like, that way every time in in it at least the way that i see it is it just incrementally gets faster and faster as we approach november because mm-hmm. everybody's trying to get everything in before they can't do anything else yes so, because historically co- companies can't do anything especially it related the last month or month and a half or so of of the year because of christmas and the other holidays that we have everybody rushes those changes in which means that from an it perspective you're that much busier towards the end of the year so it's it's been yeah no how about you same super busy and everything but trying to to get everything crammed in and it's just going to get more and more oh hey can you get this done before the end of the year type thing so yeah whatever but uh but getting to watch some really thrilling racing and everything so you know that that definitely makes the weekends much better most definitely yes Although this, exactly. this one wasn't that exciting if unless you took the the lead car out we'll talk about yes <laughs> yeah we'll get into as, as we go along today if you look at second through 16th place yes it was quite thrilling a lot but... of thrills yes a lot <laughs> yes, of battles absolutely so you know it, it'd be real interesting when we get into it in the news section so let's go ahead and talk about the japanese grand prix's history the japanese grand prix has a storied history in formula one It first appeared on the F1 calendar in 1976 at the Fuji Speedway, nestled in the foothills of Mount Fuji in Oyama, Japan. The Suzuka circuit became the race's home in 1987, minus the two years it reverted back to Fuji in 2007 and 2008, after a 10-year absence. The race has seen numerous thrilling moments and championship-deciding races, including the epic battles between Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost in 1988, the now infamous collision between Senna and Prost in 1989 and 1990. Throughout its history, the Japanese Grand Prix has often played a pivotal role in determining the F1 World Championship. A total of 13 drivers' championships have been decided at the Japanese Grand Prix, partly due to its position very late in the calendar for a number of years. In addition to the previously mentioned pro-Senna battles, it saw the title decider on its very first year between James Hunt and Niki Lauda in 1976 in near monsoon conditions, made quite famous by the movie Rush. The Suzuka circuit, known for its challenging figure eight layout, was the location of the epic race in 1994, where in another rainy, sloppy race, Damon Hill beat Michael Schumacher, leaving only one point separating the title rivals going into the last race of the season at Australia. Notably, drivers like Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher, Sebastian Vettel, and Lewis Hamilton have achieved great success at this race, adding to its prestige. The Japanese Grand Prix has also witnessed its share of extreme weather conditions, including typhoons, 
making it even more unpredictable. But it has also seen its share of monstrous crashes, including the accident that took the life of Jules Bianchi. The Japanese Grand Prix stands as a historic and thrilling event in the world of Formula One, known for its iconic moments and its role in shaping the championship for years to come. Can you explain a little bit more about Bianchi's crash? Yeah. Um, how did it happen and how long did he survive afterwards? Yes. Well, Bianchi's crash was notable for a number of reasons. So what happened was, is that during the race, he lost control and went off at the Dunlop curve. And at that time, they used tractor cranes that were actually out on the runoff area for that they used for removing cars uh, in case they, they went off or anything. And what happened was, is that he actually lost control and collided with that tractor crane and it caused very severe head trauma basically it put him into a coma i want to say it was 12 or 13 months so he he hung on for for quite a while after the collision um but it was notable for um a couple of reasons one the japanese grand prix then took and put in a permanent crane that is actually off of the runoff area so it's actually behind the barriers now so in case that there is another accident it pretty much eliminates that issue right there and also we've talked about before in the past on the podcast about when Philippe Massa had his injury when he got struck in the head by a loose suspension spring that came off of Rubens Barrichello's brawn. And that started the whole movement towards the driver's more head protection on the cars. Well, this accident, though, is really what drove the development and implementation of the Halo. So although Bianchi's death was extremely tragic it did take and help usher in the era of the halo which as we've seen on a number of occasions already has greatly improved this the head safety of formula one we can't say that necessarily it's prevented any deaths but is definitely prevented any additional head traumas and things like that because of having that protection in place yeah that's amazing i didn't know this, the full story i remember the the halo and i remember the push for it the drive for it but i didn't understand the emphasis or i didn't ever knew about the emphasis why that started and uh another notable thing about it too that i just now jogged my memory too is that okay. beforehand formula one primarily used if it was a particularly bad accident they would use the safety car to slow the whole field in a lot of cases unless the accident was really really bad where there was a lot of debris on the racing surface oftentimes they would take and only use local yellow flags in areas around the circuit when a driver went off and it was because of bianchi's crash was also led to the introduction of the virtual safety car as well which was then tested in 2014 in the last three races at the u.s grand prix brazil and abu dhabi that was very important in seeing that the the virtual safety car was brought about now me personally I've never been a huge fan of the virtual safety car. I think that using the actual safety car is better in the respect that it does pack things back up yeah. and purely from an entertainment standpoint. But I think that anything that improves the safety for the drivers and particularly for the marshals, who most of them are unpaid and are working as volunteers, 
anything that takes and improves the safety for those individuals, I'm all in favor of. Yeah, especially something as, as critical as a, the halo. Absolutely. I've gone on record as, you know, in the past as having said that I was not a big fan of the halo when it was first introduced. I thought it took away from the beauty of the cars. Over time, I have come to respect and appreciate the halo. And I think that Formula One is better for having the halos now. I remember you and I talking about how you weren't a fan of that, of the halos at first. I just generally thought it took away from the excitement of the cars when they first introduced the halos. But also, I was a little concerned at first about the drivers being able to get out in the case of the halo, being able to extract themselves. But as we saw with... Grosjean? Yes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, with Romain Grosjean's accident, when the car's on fire doesn't really take any extra time to get out of the car. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing, right? (laughs) The fears that I had about the halo and the drivers being able to escape from the car when when necessary, and also when the car is upside down. I still have some concerns about that, but fortunately, knock on wood, we haven't had a situation yet where the car has been upside down and caught on fire. Not and, yeah, because we had Zoe a couple years back Oh, yeah. Not on fire, but that was a scary, scary accident. Yes, yes, it was. Again, because at the speed at which he hit the tire barrier at the end of the runoff area when he flipped over. But the fact that the rollover hoop that's built into the air intake, the fact that it broke when the car flipped over, then I, I guess that is one of those times where we can say, we can't say definitively, right. but... Thankfully, the halo was there, and we can probably say with a reasonable amount of certainty that it was a big factor in Joe was able to walk away from that from I that accident. I'm in shock. Just it's just a testament, and I I think we we've talked about this a number of times off off the podcast, but it's just amazing to me that how far technology has come from even ten years ago where we see accidents that have, have happened recently that people are walking away from. And yeah, maybe they have a concussion or something to that effect, but, or in Danny Rick's case, a, a broken hand. But <laughs> <laughs> for, for the most part, we're, they're walking away and it's, it's not a big deal at all. You know, it, it's just, it's amazing to me how fast technology is coming along. Just, you know, in the helmets and like what we were talking about last week with the helmets and how, how much more secure they are. And, the halo and everything else that from a secure standpoint that really helping save drivers lives absolutely all right so this week on our tech corner we're going to take as Corey just mentioned our talk about crash helmets and their evolution from the early days of formula one to today we're going to take we're going to talk about the other part of the driver's protective gear and that's going to be the racing suit and we'll go ahead and we'll also touch on you know all the other parts of the racing suit outside of the helmet. So in the early days of Formula One, it was not unusual to see most drivers in t-shirts or in the case of Juan Manuel Fangio, he took and he drove with uh, just a simple polo on, most of the time with slacks. Oftentimes they wore uh, just regular dress shoes. You see those pictures from the early days of Formula One and you see these drivers pounding around and they're all like in short sleeves and... (laughs) And everything, and you, and you're just like, oh my God, how could how could we have possibly have raced back then with so little disregard for safety equipment? Yeah, well, largely it was unknown. 
Yeah, that's right? that's yeah. very true. And it was also considered kind of a badge of honor, the fact that you weren't concerned about your safety. And so you would race in shirt sleeves and, and chinos and polo helmets. Fast forward into the, the 1960s and you had individuals like Jackie Stewart who started to be much more concerned with driver safety. After 64, 65, where it was a particular bad year where they would seem like they were losing uh, a driver almost every weekend, really bad time. So drivers like Jackie Stewart started wearing cotton jumpsuits that were sprayed with a chemical retardant in order to protect them more in the case of a fire. Later on, the FIA stipulated that they use a much more robust material but at that time, it, the cotton jumpsuits with the fire retardant on them were considered sufficient. One of the big mentions is, is that the Nomex fire suit uh, started coming into fashion towards the end of the 60s. And then in 1976, when Nicky Lauda had his infamous crash at the Nürburgring and was burned over a fair amount of his body, it was then that many of the drivers started using Nomex racing suits, which if you're not familiar with it, Nomex is a special fabric that was developed by NASA for the space program that has a much, much higher fire retardant to it than the traditional cotton with the fire retardant sprayed on it. So the fabric itself is actually fire resistant. Starting in 1979, drivers like Lauda and Mario Andretti and others were actually wearing these super bulky five-layer Nomex racing suits to protect them. Over time, of course, you know, the materials became lighter and thinner and everything so that the drivers are still wearing five layers of material but it's now a fraction as thick as it was back in the late 70s and early 80s when Nomex first came into fashion so one of the things really interesting is that the specs now that are mandated by the FIA is that the driver's suit has to be able to withstand i believe it's up to it's it's like 8 or 900 degrees for I want to say it's like 30 or 40 seconds. So this is a huge reason why, you know, when we saw Romain Grosjean's horrible crash, when it, the car turned into basically a giant fireball and the fact that he was yeah. able to walk, well, not walk away, run away <laughs> from <laughs> that accident and it suffered only a, a few minor burns on his hands. It just goes to show the testament of, and again, like what you were talking about just a little bit ago, it goes to show the testament of how strong and how much the the technology has come and to make the drivers that much more safe. So in addition to going to the Nomex, also, if you've noticed that the drivers all the drivers all have suits now that have the uh, epaulets that are actually sewn into the shoulders of the driving suit. And these are not there for decorative purposes. These are actually there for a reason. They are reinforced. So that if the driver's unconscious, and especially with the advent of the halo, those epaulets are actually there so that the driver can actually be extracted from the car by those epaulets in the case that they're unconscious or there's a need to assist him. So let's go ahead and real quick, we'll also touch upon, in addition to the driver's suits having to made out of Nomex and they have the multiple layers that make them super fire and heat resistant and everything, in addition 
drivers' gloves, balaclava, shoes, socks, and underwear are all made out of Nomex. Which makes sense, right? Because if, if say, you were wearing socks that weren't Nomex, then your socks conceivably could catch on fire at a certain temperature. So one other thing of note um, that's a big difference from the Nomex driving suits that came in fashion in the 90s and early 2000s is that we've all seen drivers in their driving suits and they're emblazoned with all kinds of logos for the sponsors, for the team, for the engine suppliers, things like that. And in the early days, even though the suits were made out of Nomex, most of the time the threads that were stitched, used for the stitching to embroider the sponsor logos and stuff were, were not made out of Nomex. And it wasn't until sometime in the 90s that they started using actual Nomex thread on the Nomex driving suits in order to make the suits lighter. I want to say it was probably around 2018 or so. A lot of the drivers went away from having the stitched on sponsor logos and went to, instead they're all silk screened on with a fire retardant plastic that is used for the sponsor logos. So if you, if you look really close and you look at pictures of like, say, Ayrton Senna's suit from his time at McLaren and up to the one year that he was at Williams before his tragic passing. You can see where all the patches are either sewn on or the sponsor logo is stitched on. That's the first thing that you'll notice. The second thing you'll notice is the, that's crazy is it's like you look back on those old pictures back when they were still allowed to have tobacco sponsorships and you see the ones for like Camel and Marlboro and, <laughs> and Rothmans, which was the one that Williams Williams ran for a number of years, even though it's only saving probably maybe a handful of ounces in racing, every ounce counts and the drivers being able to not have that extra weight from the stitched on and instead having the silk screened logos on the, the suits have made them somewhat lighter. In the last few years, we've also seen the advent of the cool suits that they will actually put underneath their racing suits to help keep them cool. So, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the pictures of Max on the grid where he'll, he has on the vest that has the little pockets in it that have the frozen blocks in them. And yeah, we've seen yeah. them as they start to melt thing. And you'll see the <laughs> inside the suit as they start to melt and they start to turn back into liquid and everything. And we've also seen like the high tech ones that like the McLaren drivers use, which actually has cooling tubes that run through the vest that actually gets plugged into, I believe that the cooling suits actually have, that the McLaren is using are actually electrical powered. So they're actually plugged into wow. the car once the drivers enter the vehicle and they plug them in and it's actually an electrical pump that then takes and runs the cooling tubes that are inside of the vest. All right, so that's your education on the evolution of the driver's suit. Corey, shall we move on to the news and, and happenings from this weekend? Sounds great. Okay. So, so through uh, Suzuka, you want to start off with Red Bull? We have to start off with the Red Bulldozer this week, yeah. <laughs> um, just simply because there are a notable couple of things. Okay. So first of all, they took they returned to form this weekend. So we saw that, you know, Singapore was just an anomaly and they came back roaring back, at, you know, to their dominant self, which we kind of suspected. And we, yeah ruminated last week during the Singapore podcast that we didn't think that they would be down for very long and we were correct but it was also a very good weekend and the fact that Red Bull scored enough points with just Max finishing Mercedes finished far enough down in the order 
that they were able to secure their sixth constructors championship. So good on them. Yep. And Max is but very thing- close to sealing the championship himself. Yes. Pretty sure that in two weeks time at Qatar is when he's going to sew it up. But, you know, for every high, though, it seems like this year for Red Bull, there's also been some lows. And so we can't help but talk about Checo's bad luck again this weekend. Opening lap, because he had kind of a disastrous qualifying, he's a little further down in the order to start the race. Sergio takes and qualifies fifth. During the opening laps, he takes and has a collision, damages the front wing, comes into the pit before they even get halfway around the track. Safety car comes out because of the carnage that happens during the start. So Sergio comes back around, pulls into the pit, gets flagged for a safety car violation, gets handed a five-second penalty, but he's sent back out because all the the, the five-second penalty and everything happens after his pit stop and where, where he comes in to replace the front wing. He goes back out, they go green, and then he runs into the back end of Valtteri Botas's Alfa Romeo and damages the front wing again. Yeah. Yeah. So they end up bringing the car in. They're going to retire it and then they get the five second penalty. Right. And because they didn't want to serve it the following race at Qatar, they instead they pull him back into the garage. He has a 16 minute pit stop so that they can send him out. He goes around, comes back in, serves his five-second penalty, does another another lap, and then they retire the car. Right. Yeah, Sergio, you know, we, we've talked about it a few times where he was even with Max in the beginning of the, the season, and then he had this severe slump drop off then he looked good for a couple races and it just looks like he's just back to backsliding again his qualifying wasn't great in his race he was putting his car where honestly he he really shouldn't have been he's Mm -mm. a much better driver than this and it just as he's succumbing to the pressures of red bull he's under contract through 2024 now so it's not like he can say oh my seat's going to be given up so it's not that he's driving like completely different he, you don't see a person of Checo's caliber making the mistakes that he made. And a lot of these were true driver errors that he was making. He took a couple drivers completely out of that race just by, like you said, he hit Botas at the back. He hit another couple of cars. You don't do that in professional racing. You, you just don't. No. And we're seeing this a lot with, with Checo. So what are your thoughts on that? What, what do you think could be causing that? I I wished I knew. If I did, I'd ha- you know, I'd ha- you know have a place in as as a driver psychologist <laughs> or something in Formula One. Because that's the thing, is it's just like I I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's if he is, you know, succumbing to the pressures at Red Bull because we as we've seen what what happened with Nick DeVries, he was yeah. you know, every Every driver, that's not even Red Bull. That's yeah, just, no, no. Yeah. But I mean, it being the junior team, you know, Red Bull still has some input into what goes on at AlphaTauri. It's one of those things that every single driver has, the, the teams and the drivers have escape clauses. Now, they vary between drivers. They vary between teams. If the driver's not performing to a certain level, the team has the ability to drop them. You know, as we saw with Danny Rick last year, (laughs) exactly. exactly. You know, you and I are right there on the same page. You know, as we saw with Danny Rick, as we saw with DeVries this year, his results weren't up to what Red Bull had laid out in his contract. And so they had the ability to yank him out of the car and slot Danny Rick into that position. So just because Checo's under contract until 2024 does not mean his seat is totally safe. 
Uh, I mean, we've seen this with Albon. We've seen this with Gasly. We've seen this with other Red Bull drivers where they just weren't measuring up and they either got demoted to the the junior team or in some cases, you know, they got demoted to reserve driver. They weren't even in a race seat at that point. And then eventually in case of like Albon, who had to sit out a year because he basically, he was at Red Bull, gets demoted to the junior team. And then at the end of the year gets basically dropped all together, you yeah. know, so th- those escape clauses are always there. So you can never say with the exception of maybe like a Lewis or a sure. Max or an Alonzo, they still don't have ironclad contracts, but the threshold at which point the team can remove them from their seats is much, much higher because the contracts are not made public. We don't know what those thresholds yeah. are for Checo at what point Red Bull can replace team. Like I said, I wish I could tell you, what I think is causing the backslide is I don't know if it's, you know, something that's going on in his head, pressure coming from the outside. Is it something else that we don't know about? It's First who knows? I, I wished yeah. I did know because, right, right. you know, as we've talked about, you know, a number of times in the past, I think that Checo is a great driver. I think that he's every bit the measure of Max when he's on, but that's the problem. It's just of late, he's just, he's off more than he's on. Let's hope that maybe Checo can kind of right the ship by the time we get to Qatar. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, Yeah, and then talking through Max, you have one guy that gets a DNF basically, and then we have the other person. That's That even shines a, a much brighter light on the deficiencies of Checo. When you have somebody that doesn't finish a race, it's qualifying slower, but you have your teammate that's basically in the same car. Maybe it's a different setup, but you have the same car, two different drivers, and one driver is able to make the most out of it, get 20 or what, 19.4 or 19.6 seconds ahead of everybody else. That just shines a much bigger light on your deficiencies. If you're able to have somebody that can get maximum out of that car versus somebody that, that doesn't. It's unfortunate, but you know, Max, he drove just brilliantly. And yes. the funny thing is, too, when you think about it, how sensitive the F1 cars are to set up. Now. I don't know about the other racing series, but with F1, just how sensitive these cars are now with how you tune and how you set up the car for the, the track. In Singapore, we saw Red Bull, they looked horrible. And then in mm-hmm. Japan, they looked fantastic. So, yes. What are your thoughts there? Well, no, I, I totally agree with you. The cars are, are are so sensitive, especially the aerodynamics. As we saw at Japan, Red Bull actually brought a marginally different floor for Japan that they didn't have in Singapore. And that seemed to make a huge difference in the aerodynamics of the car. But also part of it was is that the surface at Singapore was a lot more bumpy, which required a, a taller ride height on the car. Because of the super smooth surface at Suzuka, Red Bull was able to run the car at a lower ride height. Hmm. And that seems to be the one thing that we hadn't seen before until Singapore, that it didn't seem to matter what racing service we were on, that the Red Bull was not as sensitive to differences in ride height like we've seen with Mercedes and to some degree Aston Martin. We've also seen the fact that they're a lot more sensitive to changes in the ride height. But the other thing too, though, is that I think that part of it is at the beginning of the year, the Red Bull was, for lack of a better term, a much more neutral car in the fact that both Max and Checo could extract the maximum 
performance from it. Yeah. But I think that as Max ascended in the driver's championship and as Checo started to waver a little bit, they started to develop the car more around Max's driving style, which may explain why Checo's having such problems is maybe it's the fact that the car doesn't quite suit him as well as it did at the beginning of the season. And that's the reason why maybe we're seeing the drop-off in performance. So moving forward to McLaren. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about a a car that is – I know we've talked about it multiple times, and people are probably sick of hearing about it, talk about it, but I have to talk about it yet one more time. I have one more observation to make about the McLaren, is that if they had had this car at the beginning of the season, because they were really able to push Red Bull in this race – up until the waning stages. Both Piastri and Lando were really pushing Max very hard through the first couple laps. And that I I can't help but think that if McLaren had had this car ready at the beginning of the season, how much further along would they be right now? And how much closer? Because, I mean, we're, we're talking, they, you know, it's like, okay, so yeah, I mean, Max finished, you know, like you said, 19 seconds ahead of Lando at the end of the race and everything. But it really wasn't, that big of a gap all things considered there was a couple things that happened you know with mclaren but it just seems like that the tires don't seem to hold up just quite as well but they have made such incremental progress on being able to make the tires last longer that they are they're closing that gap and they're closing it in a hurry over a single lap the mclaren is getting to the point where it's i mean it's almost the measure of the Red Bull. And admittedly, you know, they were still five, six tenths off. Max is qualifying for Piastri. I just think that this car has come so far. I think that the remaining handful of races that we have, I think that it's just going to continue to get better and better. But I'm really excited to see what next year's car is going to look like because now that McLaren has been able to make such rapid progress with this new car that I'm sure that like Red Bull, they're already focusing somewhat on next year's car. And I'm really hoping that next year's car is going to be even a bigger leap forward, really be able to close up that gap to Red Bull. Right. Now, having said that, we got to talk about Max was on the top step of the podium, but you had the first double McLaren podium since uh, Monza when Danny Rick won and Lando came second in 20, what was it? 2021 at Monza. So this is the first double podium for McLaren. Piastri had an absolutely brilliant qualifying, comes home and qualifies second. You had Lando that was literally a a hair's width behind him in third. And then at the start of the race, both Piastri and Lando are charging hard at Max and really pushing max through the first few corners and if not for the safety car who knows you know what would have happened over the course of you know if they'd been able to finish the first lap at speed if you looked at the splits over the weekend where it showed there were parts of the track where lando was significantly faster than max right you know and once we got into like the spoon curve and further into the track if they had been able to take and do the full first lap at speed, who knows what might have happened. Right. I mean, Max would probably disagree with me, but <laughs> but he's not listening anyway, because and we'll talk about his comments about podcasts later. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I didn't see that. Did you not hear about that? No, no. 
No, so somebody made the joke that the when Sky Sports do their broadcast, when they show the drivers in the cool down room after the race while they're yeah. waiting to go up on the podium and everything, that somebody made the joke that this was actually Max Verstappen's podcast and whoever was finished second and third were his guests for that particular <laughs> week. And so Lando made some crack about that and everything. And so Max made the comment about, I don't listen to podcasts, they put me to sleep. Wow. <laughs> so I know that he's not listening to us. So we yeah. can go ahead and say whatever we want to about him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it was a great weekend for Piastri. Despite losing out a place to Lando, they come home in second and third. Piastri's first podium. And Piastri, after the fact, said, you know, hey, I know the, the couple of places that I need to improve. And if I do that improvement, I could probably have been second because yeah. he never turned a wheel wrong. He was perfect all yep. weekend long and so i just i'm excited about the future for this young driver at the same time we gotta go ahead and we do have to mention about lando though that lando uh, also never turned a wheel wrong all weekend long yeah he was blazingly fast in free practice he was blazingly fast in qualifying he was pushing max gene. into the first couple corners yep. that it's not going to be long lando's going to get that first win and i'm really hoping that it's going to be this season yeah same here yeah, I, I would love to see him on top. He's such a great driver, and he's been at it for so long. Just hard, hardworking, dedicated. Uh, I would love to see him uh, take a few top spots. Yeah, absolutely. So on to Ferrari. So, yeah, kind of a middling weekend, you know, after win after, last weekend. Yeah, crazy. But, I mean, it, it wasn't terrible, though. It's just that the McLarens were just that much faster. I mean, Leclerc, you know, qualifies fourth. He comes home in fourth for the race. So nice hollow points for him. Signs is a little bit off the pace of his teammate this weekend, but he still qualifies sixth, finishes sixth. So it was a really nice points haul this weekend for Ferrari. It's one of those things that it's just that when we were talking about the Red Bull and how much of a difference the setup and the sensitivity of the setup between Singapore and Japan was we have to say this I mean it seems to be the more and more that I look at it there are certain tracks that really suit the Ferrari the Ferrari seems to be even more sensitive to aerodynamic changes based upon sure. the tracks and I don't know if this is a matter of with the budget caps is Ferrari spending more time on mechanical and less time in the wind tunnel or less time doing the, the CFD computations, you know, so that the car is much more aerodynamically sensitive based upon the track. I, I don't know. So, I mean, it was, you know, not a great weekend for Ferrari, but it was, you know, it was a good, I mean, it was a good weekend, but not a great weekend. So it was a kind of a, a little bit of a, a letdown from Singapore that I really kind of hoped that Ferrari would, would have been pushing McLaren a little more than what they did this weekend. Your thoughts? I, I agree completely, especially since we saw the performance last week and just how impressive they were, just how on top of the world. And then uh, honestly, it was just kind of a meh you know, type of yeah. a race for them. You know, it's just. Yeah, they didn't screw anything up and they had that going for them. But like I said, they, they qualify in fourth and sixth respectively and they finished fourth and sixth respectively. So they didn't lose yeah. any places. They didn't gain any places. Right. So it was just kind of a, like you said, it was just kind of a meh 
weekend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Again, it would have been different if they didn't have such a stellar weekend last weekend. It would have been different. It would have been just like, oh, well, you know, Ferrari, hey, they didn't mess anything up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's pretty, we're pretty talking sad, about though. The team. We... That's that's actually that is good. They didn't mess yes. up any, any of the strategies. They didn't mess up any of the calls. They didn't mess up you know any of that. Yeah, it's just for me, it was a little bit of a disappointment because I know yeah. that they could have been better. But the thing is though, is that again, like I said, it seems that for the most part, the Ferrari seems to be much better suited for the street style circuits. Mm -hmm. So I have a sneaking suspicion that they're going to have a pretty good rebound when we get to places like Las Vegas and stuff. So the next race at Qatar should also suit the car fairly well. So I, I think it will be uh, definitely interesting in two weeks time when we get to Qatar. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So talking now about AlphaTauri and quite frankly, their shock announcement. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I have egg on my face. Uh, hey, we both do. I yeah. would have suspected for a bazillion dollars that they would have kept Yuki. I can no. understand a little bit, just like what we were talking about last podcast, keeping Logan Sargent because of American viewership, keeping Yuki maybe possibly for Japanese viewership. I can understand that, but good grief. They're passing up Lawson. I don't know. Again, if it's, if it's purely for viewership. Okay. I understand that Lawson beat him again. Yeah. It's only his third race in the car, you know, or fourth yeah, race. Yeah, third full race, yeah, yeah, in the car. Yuki out-qualified him, but he outran yeah. him in the race and ends up Which finishing ahead. Which all that matters. Of him. Yeah. At yes, the end of the day, exactly. that's all that matters, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, I really didn't think that they would extend Yuki. Mm -hmm. I really thought that he was going to be out in at the end of the year. I, I yeah. figured that they would let him finish out. They they would have him finish out the year once Danny Rick comes back, and yeah. Lawson would give up, vacate the seat for sure. Danny Rick for a few more for what six more races or whatever, and then yep. then they would announce, <laughs> "Hey, we're we're taking Lawson." I just I saw that, and I just my mouth was just on the floor. I could not mm -hmm. believe I was reading that they kept him. Maybe they see something we don't, or I, I don't understand it myself. I saw some other discussion around that that said that they stuck with Yuki strictly because of his experience and the fact that, you know, he's been in Formula One for a couple of years now and he has, you know, a little more experience and that's the reason why they stuck with him. I'm don't dubious on that, that, bud, you know? Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm very dubious about that because I really think that holding back a talent like Lawson yeah. is going to be more detrimental. And I guarantee yeah. you that we talk about the pressure that Checo's under at Red Bull. I guarantee you that Yuki is under just as much Oh, no uh, doubt. He's under just as much pressure at AlphaTauri. And if he starts nosediving either at the end of this season or early into next season, because yeah. they did retain Lawson as the reserve driver, that I can very well see them. They're not going to be afraid to take and pull a debris and yank Yuki out of the car and put Lawson in there in this place. Oh, I mean, they have because the kid. <laughs> yeah, this kid is just too impressive and too. He's he is go just somewhere. too good that you're not going to be able to keep him out of Formula One. Right. for very very much longer before somebody else is going to come calling and want yep. his services whether yep. it be williams deciding to part ways with sergeant at the end of the year yep. or haas coming calling you know well, haas, who knows haas, they just signed both of their drivers so they're yeah they just signed both their drivers but again you know you never know yeah, 
<laughs> so on to Mercedes. It was another kind of uncharacteristic, mediocre weekend for Mercedes. You know, they qualify seventh and eighth. Lewis has a has a pretty decent race, is able to take advantage of some of the other drivers' misfortunes and stuff, brings it home in fifth. George takes and tries to make it a one-stop race, which ended up not working out, and the tires ended up degrading way faster than what they thought and he ends up sliding backwards a little bit towards the end of the race he ends up bringing it home seventh not a great weekend for them but not all entirely an awful weekend for them you know it's like ferrari yes it was a great weekend but hey at least both of them finished and george didn't mind the gap yes exactly he didn't go for the gap again For those that don't know, we're referring to a, what was it, a video, a meme, a, you tell the story. It was the uh, the famous interview with Ayrton Senna, where he talks about when you stop trying to go for the gap, that's when you should get out of racing. And, and then they take and cut to George Russell going into the tire barrier at Singapore in the exact spot of the word Singapore, where it's G-A-P, gap. <laughs> so he literally <laughs> went for the gap. <laughs> On to uh, Aston. So this is another one. It's a tale of two completely different weekends. You have Alonso, who takes and has a decent qualifying, not quite up to his standard, but he still makes it into Q3, qualifies 10th. And you have Lance Stroll, who qualifies all the way down in 17th. And then come race day, amazing at taking every advantage that's presented to them. Alonso brings the car home in 8th, and Lance Stroll ends up another DNF. Like, How much longer is Daddy going to indulge Lance before he finally says, okay, in the name of competition and in trying to push the team to the top of the order, we got to have somebody with more talent. So on to Alpine. Yes. A little bit so better now, of a weekend for them? Yeah, because they were in higher up in the points uh, yeah. last weekend at Singapore. But this week they come in, Uh, You know, they have a pretty good weekend. Gasly and Ocon both come in in the points. Gasly coming in at 7th. Ocon comes in at 10th. All in all, it was not a bad weekend for Alpine. In the earlier part of the year, they were very up and down, had some absolutely disastrous weekends, such as, you know, at the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. And they had a solid weekend. You know, they both came home in the points. So, I mean, I don't know really what more we can say about them. Heartbreak for for old Williams. Uh, Double DNF. Double Uh, DNF. First of all, you got to talk about Sergeant. As we talked about, do we really have to? (laughs) Well, I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) No, no, no. I agree with you. You know that it would be kind of nice to not have to talk about Sergeant's struggles because for every kudos that we have for Piastri and Lawson. We can't say about Sargent, which is so sad. It's like he has a horrible shunt during qualifying. Oh, it was horrible, yeah. Yeah, just basically just messes up the car in all kinds of ways. Ends up having to change out, you know, major components on the car so that it takes and he gets handed down penalties so that he has to start from the pit lane. Yep. Start of the race. And it's basically like bumper cars out there. And he ends up damaging the car and ends up having to retire the car after only only what 22 laps you know and then albon who also is out there playing bumper cars he ends up having to retire the car a couple laps later so it was an altogether forgettable weekend for poor yes and let's let's hope that Qatar is a little better for them i hope so too and then haas getting used to being in the back of the grid unfortunately yeah that's the thing but hey 
you have two really good drivers. The car just is not there. No. But the thing is, is with the Haas is that over one lap, it's a very, very good car, as we've seen at times this year, you know, where, where they've qualified very, very well. But for some reason, that car eats the tires. And the over the race pace, the tire degradation on the Haases is so much higher than it is on any other car on the grid. Even for and that's the reason why we can see on some weekends we see Nico and K Mag qualifying really well because yep. they get the qualifying setup perfect. They qualify really, really well, but then over the course of the race distance, they lose degrades. time because the tires degrade so badly. And like this weekend where they take they wind up a lap down. You got to at least give them points over, even though they didn't score any points, you got to give them points over Williams and Alfa Romeo because they actually did finish. Horrible weekend for Alfa, and let's just hope that they can reset. I think that they definitely want to forget their jaunt to the Far East, get back to the factory in Switzerland, and yep. call it good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's it. But yeah, I, th I think so too. So uh, let's go ahead and put her in the garage and uh, goodbye for this week. We're, we'll come back to you in, next week with a preview of the Qatar Grand Prix and talk about any news and rumors that may happen between now and then. And so until next time, for Corey Brune, I'm Scott Vick. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Show. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Vick and Corey Broom, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.